Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. It's great to see all of you this morning. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and we offer a very, very warm welcome to you, whether you are worshiping with us here in person or over the live stream. We offer you a very, very warm welcome. If you're on the live stream, Facebook or YouTube, do us a favor and let us know you're here. You can do that by checking in or pressing like or doing whatever in terms of that. We would love to know that uh, you are joining us for worship this morning. If you are visiting with us here today, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. We hope that you received our uh, visitor's packet, our, what I, uh, I hope affectionately call our bag of swag. I hope you got the bag of swag, all the fun stuff out of that, and that way uh, we have the opportunity to let us know, to let you know who we are. And we would like to invite all of you to sign our friendship pad. That's at the first, kind of if you're at the end of the, I always feel like one of those Southwest airline people. If you're at the end of the aisle, this is, this is what you, if you're not willing to sit near an exit row, you know, all that, this is your responsibility, sitting on the, uh, on the aisle. Get that friendship pad started. Sign it yourself. Uh, pass it down to your neighbor. It is one of those tangible, practical things that allows us to get to know you and hopefully, this is our vision, build a friendship with you. A couple of announcements I just want to highlight uh, that are in your bulletin. Uh, Inquirer's class is two weeks away. It's not too late to sign up. It'll be Friday night, November 12th. Now, I can tell you it will be at Evie's and I's house at 6 o'clock. We'll share a meal together and then we'll go into the teaching time. And then Saturday from nine to three, we'll be here at the church. And so there's still a sign-up sheet. You can call the office or you can um, go online and sign up online as well. So that's coming up. It is hard for me to believe that Christmas, believe it or not, is not that far away. What is tomorrow? November 1st, we're moving into the holiday season. So a couple of things I want to remind you up there. Sign up to help decorate the church for Christmas. That will be Saturday, November 27th at 9.30 a.m. You know, if we get many hands here to decorate it, we do that. I think college football is still going on there. You get to go home in time for the first college football game and do that, but we can do all of that. And then a real special event, the Women's Ministries Advent Tea is Tuesday evening, December 7th. It starts at 6.30. Ladies, this is a great time that we want to encourage you to be a part of. There is a sign-up sheet that is out in the narthex. Let us know uh, if you're able to make it. Friends, however, there is a deadline this year for signing up, which will be November 28th. So we want you to let us know as quickly as possible if you're able to attend that. That promises to just be a fun Wonderful evening of fellowship and celebration. My last announcement is to call somebody up here to make a very, very special announcement. Steve, share a little bit what's happening in missions these days. A few minutes to update everybody on a project that we've been working on with the missions team. You know, the Lord's really blessed our church, and we have 26 different missions that we support around the local community, also around the, the country, and then around the world. So it's a really exciting time being able to share what's going on. Um, 
and our support comes in the form of a lot of prayer. That's one thing. Also, the service this local um, body does, if you look at the mission map that we're going to talk about here, you'll see the local missions, this church does an amazing job reaching out and working in this community. And also your financial support. Um, 26 missions is a lot of missions, and it's really neat to see the commitment and the level that our church supports our missionaries. Now, you may have noticed this morning when you came in, um, you know, the focal point and what the map that we put up, uh, the purpose of that was to really change the focus of our missions and put it out in front of everybody and let you be able to see it. And that was something our mission team had been talking about and was really excited about. So I want to take just a minute to thank those who uh, worked on this project. First, the mission team who had the vision and spent some time gathering information for it. Also, Dick Forrester, who was an integral part of the installation, of the coordination, and just did a lot of things for this project. And then Ken Johnson actually built the display case. So when you see the case out there, Ken built that for us. And Megan McCutcheon put forward, took all the information and she put it into the information sheets that you'll see on the display case. And I want to take just a minute to explain that. So when you look at the case down on the bottom, you'll see a sheet for each one of our missionaries, a picture, and then it has a, you know, who they're affiliated with. And in the bottom left-hand corner, there's a number, and that number correlates to the number that's up on the map. So if you want to see where the mission is, you can look up on the map and find them. And then this is something really neat that Megan did. The bottom left-hand corner is a QR code. So if you take your phone out, turn your camera on, and put it in the viewfinder over the QR code, it'll pop up a link to your Internet Explorer. Just touch it, and it'll take you to this mission for this uh, group, and you can read more information about them on the spot. So. Really appreciate Megan putting that together for us. And then um, also, after service, you can get a chance to spend some time looking at them. We'd appreciate that. And it'll give you that, um, just kind of that full picture of who all we're supporting as a church body. Also want to take just a minute to um, tell you about two new missionaries we're supporting. The first is Chuck Garriott, Ministry to the State. Chuck is in Washington, D.C., and he is ministering to our government officials. Very important ministry, as you can imagine, this time you know, with all that we have going on. So really excited about supporting this new ministry. And we hope to get Chuck down uh, sometime next year to spend some time with us. And the next one is Chris Drinkard. Chris is with Campus Outreach, and he is located in the Philippines. Chris will actually be here on November 21st doing a missionary visit. And we're going to uh, do something a little different. We're going to have Chris come in at 9.15 in the morning till 10. So if you can come join us prior to the service, Chris is going to get 45 minutes with us telling us about his mission. And it's a really neat mission down in the Philippines they're doing. And then just in closing, just wanted to um, tell everybody, we really hope that the map shows how the Lord's working, not only through this local body, but around the world. And we really appreciate all the support for the missions. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I really do encourage you after the service to take a look at that map. And the QR code, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I love cool stuff. It is just absolutely amazing to put your phone up there and all of a sudden you have on your phone their webs, all the stuff you can pray for. And even though many of them are far, far away, you can get to know them. It's a way I think we can be more and more connected. So I'm really excited about that and want to say thank you as well to all who put that together. 
Friends, this is the greatest privilege we have together as a body, as a family of God, and that's to come together and worship. This is how God forms us. This is how God disciples us. God is present, and he's at work in our midst, and we have the opportunity to lift up his name, to glorify him, to honor him. And so now, as the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts to meet with God this morning.
How appropriate on this Reformation Day, a mighty fortress is our God. Think about the words to that great hymn, a bulwark never failing. Praise the Lord. And this Lord, this God, omnipotent, omniscient, wants us to be in his presence, desires communion with his children. This God has called us to worship this morning. Our call to worship is from Psalm 96, verses 1 through 4. Friends, hear the call to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all all gods. Father, may we sing to you. May we join with the entire cosmos in praising your most holy name. May we tell of your salvation from day to day. We are here by your grace and your grace alone. May we declare your glory among the nations. Just the very fact that we are here this morning bears witness that you rule and that you reign and that you alone are God. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. May you join us that we may sing to your name and glorify you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand together as we sing our opening hymn of praise. Praise my soul, the King of heaven.
Each Lord's Day, we have the opportunity to confess our faith together. And so one of the things I wanted to do this morning is introduce us to a new confession of faith. It's out of the Church of South India. And one of the reasons to do this is to show that, it, to me, it ties in with missions, it ties in with Reformation Day, that God is at work not just here at Lake Oconee, not just in our congregation, not just even in the PCA. God is at work in the world. God is at work globally. We worship a sovereign God who is sovereign over, did you hear the call to worship? The call to worship was for the nations to worship him. One of the things that came out of the Reformation was an emphasis on missions. And so, friends, let's together confess our faith, saying together this particular confession. I believe in one God who creates, loves, cares, and corrects all people, who acts in history, and who promises never to leave us alone. I believe in Jesus of Nazareth, who is Lord, Christ, and Redeemer, who wants not to be idealized, but to be followed. I believe that we live in the presence of the Holy Spirit, without whom we are nothing. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we are able to become creative, free, and full of life. I believe in the church of God in Jesus Christ, a community where we find companions and courage for the struggles of life, where we grow in the understanding of our faith through worship, fellowship, and acts of liberation. I believe that God has called us to a partnership for the continuance of his mission in this time and place, and that, though we live in the midst of confusion, turmoil, exploitation, and oppression, and in the grip of the forces of death, we are called to be the instruments of peace and justice. I believe that God brings about change in people, in nature, and in the whole cosmos that God makes the whole creation a new heaven and a new earth of justice, peace, harmony, and life in all its fullness. Let's continue to worship standing and singing together how great is our God. Yeah. 
find I just have to stand sometimes and take it in. How great is our God? The Lion of Judah who conquers. And how does he conquer? By becoming a lamb who was led to the slaughter. No one could make this up. No, this is just amazing. One of the things I pray on the Lord's Day morning is that we would be caught, that our eyes would be opened to the wonder and the beauty of God. And part of that wonder and beauty is the opportunity we have to pray. The opportunity as we work our way through the liturgy, God initiates and he calls. We're always rehearsing and reenacting the story of God. That's what's going on in the liturgy. God calls us to worship. We respond by praising him. We confess what it is we believe. Where in a sense, that confession is based on the revelation of God. So God is telling us again who he is. We respond, we sing. Now, once again, God reveals to us how we are to pray. He's given us a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. He's always initiating, we're responding. And so let's pray together this prayer that our Savior gave us, and then I will lead us in the pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We do praise you and we thank you, Father, that by your grace you have called us into your very presence. On this particular day, we recognize that time in history known as the Reformation, where you raised up your people to recover certain truths that even if they weren't lost entirely, had been dimmed. As we have the promise of your word, the light will always shine in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it entirely. And so, Lord, we remember and we praise you that Christianity is not a new thing. It is rooted in history, that your doctrines are true. We thank you for the great doctrine of justification by faith, that we are, we stand before you acceptable, forgiven, because of your work in Christ. It is a free gift that we receive by faith and by faith alone. And Father, we thank you for other doctrines that were recovered, the priesthood of all believers, the very fact that gifts have been given to the church at large, to every individual within the church. So Lord, I think about just looking at what the missions team has been about and doing. I thank you for how you have gifted your people. I think of the women's ministry and the Adventee coming up. I thank you how you've gifted people that we all are, in a sense, bridges, that we are bringing people to you. And Father, we recognize that we're all in different places, that we're all going through different things, so we pray for those who are hurting. Lord, grant us compassionate hearts that any who are struggling, any, as we're going to look at in the text of Scripture, any who are bruised reeds, Lord, as you're tender to them, may we be tender. And we pray that you give them daily bread, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational. 
Father, we pray that you would come alongside us. And we pray for us as a church to grow in our relationships, loving you, loving one another, and that that overflow of love would overflow into love for our community. That we would look out over this area and we'd have a heart to see what are its needs? How can we seek for the gospel to transform this particular area? And so, Father, we do pray that you would be at work amongst us. Thank you that for who you are and what you're doing. We love you and we praise you. And we pray now in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.
There was our prayer for the sermon. That's what we want to see. Show us Christ. I feel like I could go, amen. Let's do it. That's anything I offer at this point. I'm like, oh my goodness. Don't botch it up, Jeff. Because <laughs> that's why we're here. We're here to have more hope in Christ. We're here to worship God through Christ. So choir, thank you so much. What a beautiful song and a beautiful prayer. Now, I will keep going, because I worked all week on this sermon. I'm excited about it. You all are here. You got dressed up. There's this sense of anticipation. You all saw on our Facebook page that big question mark, what is Jeff preaching on? Because he's taking a little break from Romans. Remember I told you a couple mini-series, the way we're doing it, and then we're moving in from there. So I want to have the big unveiling and do that. That's kind of fun to do that. So let's pray, and then we'll look at our text for this morning. Father, we do pray that you would show us Christ. The psalmist put it this way. May the eyes of our hearts be opened, that we may behold wondrous things that are written of you in the law. Wondrous things that are written about you in your word. So I pray that, that you, you who have prepared our hearts would open our eyes this morning, that we wouldn't just walk away from here with more information but we would be drawn into making you bigger and bigger and bigger in our lives, that we would worship you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you saw the little video promo that we do on Fridays, you got part of the unveiling there, what we are going to be doing for the weeks leading up to and going through Christmas and between now and the new year, basically, is looking at the subject of hope and looking specifically using some of the prophecies that are found in the book of Isaiah that speak about the nature of hope. And so I would encourage you, if you have Bibles, turn in them. This morning we are looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice 
He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord that is given by the triune God of love because he loves us. You know why I say that as well? I say that each week because God giving us his word, revealing himself, he didn't need to do that. He didn't have to do that, but even the act of him revealing himself to us is an act of love, an act of his vulnerability, an act of his wanting us to know him. The very fact that we have his word ought to lead us to worship and ought to give us hope, ought to increase hope in our lives that God did not give up on a humanity that has turned away from him. We all, don't blame Adam and Eve, I know it might have, they got the ball rolling, let's put it that way. But guess what? If we were there, we would have done the same thing. And God did not give up on us. That's part of the good news. Here's my thesis statement for our series. So I probably repeat it often because I want you to remember this. But this is the thesis statement as we look at these prophecies from the book of Isaiah. And that is that hope is the engine that drives your soul. Tim Keller says the real life-changing dynamic of Christianity is an experience within oneself of the future. In other words, you really change. The dynamic of change for the Christian is an experience within yourself of the future. So hope is the engine that drives your life. And my proposition based upon that is how you live now is completely determined by your believed-in future. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning, Isaiah chapter 42, begins with the words, Behold my servant. Now, there's different translations. Some will say, Here is my servant, or Look my servant. I love the ESV, and I think the NASB says this as well, because it gets your attention. Behold is almost kind of like, wake up, my servant. And what Isaiah is wanting to do is something very purposely, very intentionally, because up to this point, he has been in a way saying, behold, look at all your idols. Look at the idols of your life. Do they come through for you? How's it working for you? Do they satisfy you? Are they able to forgive you? Do they have the power to give you hope? And so in chapter one, you kind of get, chapter 41, excuse me, you get kind of this 
Behold, look at the idols. And here's this contrast. Now, a new player sets out on the stage. The servant of the Lord. Behold, look at my servant. Who is this servant? There's a lot of things we're going we're gonna to learn about it. The New Testament, see Isaiah didn't have the New Testament when he was prophesying this. We learn that the servant of the Lord is identified with Jesus, but Isaiah didn't have that. And what we learn is that the servant of the Lord will be the Lord's remedy for the emptiness, hurt, rebellion, and oppressiveness of the world. In other words, what is Isaiah doing? He's prophesying about this mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord. He wants us to see who he is. What is he all about? What is his mission? What has he come to do? And here in Isaiah 42 is the first of what is called the songs of the servant. Apparently, the servant sings, or we sing about the servant. At several different places through this, you've got this idea of these servant songs that highlight who he is and what he's come to do. And here, the first of these, we learn that the main idea of this particular passage pointing to the work of the servant is the idea of justice. The servant will bring, will execute justice to the world. In fact, the word justice is mentioned three times in the first four verses alone. The servant will bring justice to the nations. His scope is worldwide. Now, we have to be careful. We have to define some things right off the bat. Because there's a lot of talk about justice in the world today, isn't there? And I'm not real sure it's always consistent with the Bible. There's a lot of talk about it. Some, it's the only thing they talk about. Others, oh, I heard the word justice. I'm going to bristle at the notion. Friends, we need to be people of the word and look at because one of the things we're going to learn today is that it is biblical justice that brings us hope, that leads to hope. And here we learn that justice is found in a person, in this servant. So right away, that eliminates a whole lot of things. Justice isn't found in the world. It isn't found in a program. It isn't found in an idea. It isn't found in the government. It is found in a person, in this servant. So what does this servant come to do? What is biblical justice? I think at its heart, it is putting the world to rights. To put to rights the world according to God's design. And what is God's design? According to the Hebrew mindset, we have to get into the Hebrew world a little bit. We're looking at Old Testament now, not New Testament, so you have to enter a different set of lenses. It's not going to be necessarily Western in all our ways of thinking. According to the Hebrew mindset, God's design is summed up in a word, and that word is shalom. You may have heard of the word shalom. It's the word that we translate peace. But it is so much bigger a concept, bigger an idea. For shalom is not just kind of the idea of, ah, I'm at peace. Georgia won yesterday. The Braves won last night. 
OU won, Jeff's at peace, the rest of you might not be. Atlanta's going to close it out tonight. I'm enjoying a good golf game. Peace. That may be a blessing, and all may be wonderful things and all, but this is such a richer, fuller concept. Probably the best book I've ever read on it is, and I'm always recommending books to you, aren't I? Okay, Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And the subtitle, A Breviary of Sin. I think I got caught up with breviary. I was like, that's a cool word. It's kind of like I like cool things. I like the missions map, the QR code, and the word breviary. That just sounds cool. But actually, it is a great book. And listen to this. Plantinga writes, he says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. In other words, shalom is a just state of affairs. Shalom is the way things are meant to be, the way God created everything and looked out over everything and said, it is very good. In other words, this is what the servant will do. This is the servant's mission, to renew the entire cosmos, to bring it back into a state of shalom. To bring justice is to order everything the way it ought to be. And here, we see that justice, justice the way the servant will bring it, impacts our life today. Remember, hope is the engine that drives your soul. So how does it impact our lives today? We're going to look at three particular ways. Three particular ways. The servant who will bring forth justice impacts our lives today in three ways. To live in hope, to live in humility, and to live in love. Sounds a little different than we hear on TV a lot of times, doesn't it? How often do we get, oh yeah, this will, this will lead you to live in hope, humility, and love. I'm not sure that's what I'm hearing all the time. First of all, you need a God of justice to live in a hope, to live in hope in a broken world. Let me remind us of the historical situation in which Isaiah was writing. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Isaiah was written to a nation facing exile. And I want you to think about what exile is. Exile is a desperate situation where you are stripped away from your home, your familiarity, your place. It's a kind of a sense of helplessness and nothingness. And so as a result, here they are. They're stripped away. They're taken away. I mean, the rest of the Old Testament tells us they were in exile because of their sin. But here they are. They're facing exile. And as a result, they're facing tremendous injustice, tremendous brokenness. The capital city is being torn down. Their own children are being slaughtered. And so what do they need? 
What do they need in the face of this situation? They need hope. They need assurance that God is going to deal with this situation. And it's into this situation, even hearing the words, think about how the nation would be thinking when they hear the words, behold my servant. It's like, wait a second. Something is about to change. He says, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. In other words, he will be anointed. He will be equipped. He will be equipped to do the task for which I call him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And then look with me at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you hear the point of Isaiah? What is the point of him saying in verse 3 that the servant will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick? Among other things, and we're going to look in pretty good depth at this image, this servant is subject to the same pressures which have made others burn low or become a smoldering wick. But yet he doesn't burn low. He doesn't smolder. He's not immune to suffering, but the pressures and the blows that paralyze us, that immobilize us, do not deter him. Now, let's take a look at this image. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, we hear the word bruise, and in English, it's very easy to think, no big deal. I get bruises all the time. You should see Evie's in my arms from our little puppy, Gracie. We're bruised all over. She jumps on us. She runs all over us. Of course, we let her. She's a spoiled dog. There's no question about that. But we have bruises, and it's no big deal. A little break in the skin, a little cut, a little scratch. Not a big deal, right? What is the real meaning of this image? And again, this should be no shock to you, no surprise. Guess who I'm indebted to in terms of teaching me this? Tim Keller, he puts it best. He says this Hebrew word for bruised is also translated crushed. What we're talking about here is a deep contusion, not simply a break in the skin. It is a deep contusion that has either injured or destroyed a vital internal organ. Keller says this word often means a death blow. So now, when Isaiah says a bruised reed he shall not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not snuff out, he will not quench, what is he talking about? Again, Dr. Keller writes, he says, Jesus Christ, this servant, is attracted to hopeless cases. He loves the fragile. He loves people who are beaten and who are battered and who are bruised and maybe don't show it on the outside, but on the inside, they're dying. Jesus knows what to do with them. And what does he not do? He doesn't break them. He doesn't shame them. I included this quote in your reflection so you can take it home, and I would encourage you to take it home and read it often. Written by a woman by the name of Barbara DeGuid, her husband teaches at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And she writes, I am convinced that these believers, whom some, whom some may refer to as the least of these, may in fact be among the real champions of our faith. They limp through life, barely able to remember the truth or connect the mighty doctrines of the faith to their struggles in a way that would calm their fears and quiet their hearts. 
They're told they must run toward God with all of their strength, and yet often find themselves barely able to lie on the ground facing the right direction. They cling to God desperately, but without ever feeling an assurance of his presence or an ability to rest in the love that surrounds them. Shall we just go on planning more Bible studies for them? Shall we discipline them when they repent time and time again but can't quite seem to break free from deeply ingrained patterns of sin? I am convinced that these precious saints are among those Christ died for and are in their own way heroes of the faith, clinging to God in spite of the weakness of their faltering faith. They are the bruised reeds that we must not break and the smoldering wicks that our triumphalism would so easily extinguish. They are the ones who believe in the face of their own struggles with unbelief. We must love them, bear their burdens gently, and help them to carry their loads because they belong to us. They are our family in the Lord. Maybe this is you this morning. Maybe this is me this morning. Maybe on the outside, we look fine. Nobody would know that on the inside you're dying, you're hurting. It's a struggle just to be here this morning or maybe even to just get out of bed. Listen, can I tell you something? Jesus, the servant, is drawn and attracted to you like a magnet. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick that our counsel of just buck up, I have four suggestions to fix you, will not help. We need to, as bluntly as I can say, Quit it. Here's what we need to know. Jesus is drawn to you. Jesus sees you. Jesus notices you. And we are the body of Christ on the earth. He says he loves you, and we are the bruised reeds of the heroes of the faith. Now, let me ask this question. How can this be? How can Jesus be so drawn to a bruised reed? How can we be assured of this? And see, to know this, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the place where shalom was broken and injustice entered the world. We need to know the biblical story, the biblical worldview in its entirety. See, right as sin and injustice entered the world through their turning away from God, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the gospel is immediately preached. Immediately, God proclaims the first gospel. And it's very interesting, God is actually preaching to Satan. And in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that same word? See, here is our hope. This offspring of the woman will bruise, will crush, will give an ultimate death blow to Satan's head. Injustice will end. Shalom will come. That is the hope that drives our soul. But look what else. Satan will also bruise his heel. Now, let's admit that. See, how often... See, I want to know when we read the Bible, how often do we pay attention and really think deeply about some of these images? 
that are being communicated to us. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Think of the image. And again, Tim Keller gives this illustration, and to me it's just so pertinent. He says, I want you to picture you're standing in a group of people, all your loved ones around, and a deadly poisonous snake starts slithering toward them. I have to admit and share a personal word in here. Evie and I got on that next door app. We're scared. You're going to have to boost up this bruised read because all I'm reading about is coyotes and snakes and something called water hyacinths. I'm not sure what that is either. I'm like, Evie, where? So I take Gracie out at night. And we're standing at the door looking both ways. Okay? So I'm, I'm reading Tim Keller's illustration on this and I'm going, Wow, I kind of get this. Huh. He says, you're amongst a group of your loved ones, your friends and family are all around, and here's this deadly poisonous snake starts slithering towards everybody. And you know the only way to save them is to step on it. And he says, don't you see? When you step on a deadly poisonous snake, even if you crush its head, it can bite your heel and poison you. You saved your friends by having the poison of the serpent go into you. You saved your friends, but you've died. And he says, this is exactly what Jesus, this servant, has done for you. He took the poison. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised in order to deal with our bruises. And friends, he wants us to be a church that welcomes, that bears the burdens of, that embraces, that enhances the dignity of bruised reeds because you know what? We are all bruised reeds. What did Reformation Day teach us? None of us can save ourselves. We're all bruised reeds who needs Jesus Christ to be bruised for us because that's our only hope in the world. This servant brings us hope. He also brings us humility. Verses 5 and 6, this is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. Notice this, the next line, I am the Lord have called you and I have called you in righteousness. I'll be brief with this point. Here's one of the things, a couple things that lead us to humility here. First of all, did any of you Biblical scholars out there, pick up the phrase, I am, I am the Lord. Wasn't that used before in the Old Testament? When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses, and I, and I relate to Moses, I, I love Moses. Moses and Peter are two of my favorite guys in the Bible. Because Moses is kind of like, he struggles with inadequacy. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I get that. And Moses is like, really, God, you're going to call me? Have you looked in? Have you done the background check on me? Have you? I'm, I'm kind of guilty of a few things. Have you checked into my history here a little bit? When I go to these people and I'm not really sure they're going to follow me, I, you know, I don't have, I'm not kind of the charismatic leader who just commands the room and, and does all that. Who should I say has sent me to you? Got to love God's answer. I am who I am. Can you fill that out a little bit? Do we have an essay to that, to that answer a little bit? And God just simply says, I am who I am. Tell them I am who sent you. 
I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. Here's the heart of humility, because humility is not, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis here, humility is not not feeling good about yourself. Humility is not self, it's not an inferiority complex. Lewis defined humility as thinking less about yourself. So it's not superiority, it's not inferiority, it's kind of an unselfconsciousness. You're so caught up with God and others that you're thinking of yourself less. What gets us on the road, the trajectory, so to speak, of doing that? Recognizing God is God and we're not. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. And here's the second thing that will bring us humility, and that's if we're aware of the danger of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is an insidious danger to our souls and to relationships. See, I want you to think about this. I am the Lord. I'm God, and you're not. And I have called you in righteousness, which means I set the standard. And the standard is perfection. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, he will say that even all of your righteous acts, the things you feel the best about, are like filthy rags. We need to understand that we're accountable to him in every word, every motive, every action, every thought, every deed. How dare us feel superior, superior to anyone? The danger, and this servant comes, and if we recognize we're all bruised reeds, how can a bruised reed be superior to anybody else? And where is that the most struggle? That's The most struggle that is is with people who differ with us. We have to remember that we are bruised reeds. Lastly, Look with me at verses 8 and 9, the last impact it has on our lives, and that is to live in love. Again, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. So here he is hearkening back to his personal, proper name, Yahweh. I am the Lord, the God who saves, the God who delivers. That is who I am. I'm a God who's drawn to bruised reeds. I'm a God who is attracted to the hopeless cases, to the outcasts. And then he says, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with you. So if you go around thinking, well, wait a second, it's almost like that parable in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men stood up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all other men. I fast twice a week, I tithe, I do this, I do that, and I thank you, God, that I'm not like this bruised reed over here, this poor, despicable sinner. And the publican, the tax collector, can't even look up to heaven, but beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God will not share his glory with us. I will not give my glory to another 
Grace is wonderful, but do you know what it does? It takes everything out of our hands. We don't save ourselves. God is here declaring his own name, his personal name. And he is saying, I'm the, I, my name is, I deliver. Now, where is God's name most clearly revealed? Where do we see it in all its glory? Where does God chiefly reveal his glory? In John chapter 12, verses 27 through 28, we read, Now my soul has become troubled. This is Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What was this hour Jesus is referring to? It was his death on the cross. Jesus asks the Father to glorify his name, to which the Father answers, he has glorified it and will glorify it again. The place where God most glorifies his name, which he will not share with another, is on the cross. And what do we learn on the cross? That if God is going to be a God of justice but not love, or is he going to be love but not just, only at the cross happened is God both. Perfect justice and perfect love at the same time. Perfect justice in that sin is punished and furious love because the justice fell on him and not on us. And if we understand that and to the degree that we understand that, that Jesus Christ is the judge who is judged, we can see how it impacts us, verses 6 and 7, where he says, I will give you, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Ultimately, that's about Jesus, but where are we? We're in Jesus. As Jesus was given for us, we are to give our lives for the sake of the world. As Jesus is for us, we are to be a light to the nations for the sake of the world. Hope is the engine that can drive our souls. And hope is found in the justice of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to be that light to the nations. That, Father, we would, as Jesus, you lived for us, we would live for the sake of others. So we'd grow in hope, we'd grow in humility, we'd grow in love. Thank you for this servant for who he is and what he's come to do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's close our service standing to sing, Man of Sorrows, what a name.
Friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.